0: My freshman year of college was also the first year I began uh, formal work. My first job uh, was working in the cafeteria uh, on campus at the university, and in preparation, a prerequisite for this job was to attend, as I recall, uh, two days of training, which included instruction in uh, hygiene and cleanliness. I recall a couple hundred uh, people from various restaurant and and food industries attending this training, and as a way to illustrate the importance of hand-washing in in food services, those who were providing the training called one or two volunteers down onto uh, the front stage, and they had the volunteers put some kind of ointment on their hands, uh, but then they had them wash their hands thoroughly uh, with, with soap and water, probably for a good 15, 20, 25 uh, seconds. They then dried their hands, and then the instructor ran an ultraviolet, I believe an ultraviolet light over their hands to reveal any remaining uh, germs or bacteria that that still might be present. Even after the washing, you could see, uh, projected up on on a screen, uh, numerous bright green spots, patches of of bacteria all over their hands. Though invisible to the naked eye, uh, many were the germs that were still remaining. In a similar way, beneath the surface of people's lives, beneath the surface of the Christian's life, if one is willing to examine, if one is willing to look, there is often a spiritual bacteria. It's something the scriptures call idolatry or an idol. Idolatry is like a bacteria, a virus seeking to get beneath our spiritual skin in order to take root and take hold of something very precious, which is the heart. It's something every Christian is to be aware of and of which God provides remedy. Ultimate remedy and everyday remedy. We have come to the end of 1 John. And I want to give uh, attention to the last verse. Just one verse. 1 John 5, 21. I'll give you a moment to turn there if you would like. It's a mere six words in English. 1 John 5, 21. I'll read verse 20 and 21. John writes, And we know that the Son of God has come... And has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Here's the last verse. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a a striking verse, both in its content as well as where it's placed in this sermon or letter that John has given. Here in a letter that is five chapters long, I believe, 113 or so verses, centering on who Jesus is as the Christ. John has spent much attention and energy on this. Much focus on what a life after Christ looks like. Much attention on the assurance that the Christian is to have regarding their life in the Lord. To then come to the end of the letter with a note about idolatry is significant. Maybe curious in our minds. I think insightful. Perhaps in John's mind, central to the Christian faith and Christian living is recognizing Being attentive to idols, vying for our hearts, guarding one's heart from idolatry, and then dispelling it or displacing it with what one Scottish minister, Thomas Chalmers, called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. That's where we're headed. But we must first ask, what is idol. What's idolatry? It sounds kind of archaic. Isn't that something dealt with in, in ancient times? But all we have to do is look at the fact that a contemporary TV show is called American Idol. I, idolatry is alive and well. I think an entryway into this question about idolatry is the Apostle Paul's ministry to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, As Paul is carrying out his missionary journeys, he travels to Thessalonica, then to Berea, and then he comes to Athens in Acts 17. And he notices that the city is full of idols, Acts 17, 16. After he teaches and he preaches, some of the Stoic philosophers and Epicurean philosophers want to hear more. So they bring him to the Areopagus, where the latest teaching and philosophies were discussed. And there Paul stands amidst the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, and he says this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, a number of things could be drawn from what Paul has said there. But key words from Paul in in that passage provide us insight into human nature and idolatry. He says, I perceive you are very religious, and I have observed your objects of worship. Here is a city full of idols and people who do not know the true God and yet they are worshiping. They are worshipers. It's an important biblical point. The Scripture does not categorize people as worshipers and non-worshipers. All humanity is identified as worshipers. The objects of your worship. The difference lies in the object, what it is that a person is worshiping, and the form of worship. Remember what Paul said in Romans 1, people exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So when John says, keep yourselves from idols, he's speaking about something core to our identity as people. Humanity was made to worship, to offer sacrifice, to give of their life and their heart to something, to someone. So John's words about idolatry in this last verse bring us to the place of the heart. The the Scripture speaks so much about the heart. I was just reading this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 8, guarding our hearts, lest we forget the Lord in our hearts. Jesus spoke much about the heart. Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, slander, theft. We might define the heart as simply the the inner core of who we are. It's what drives your thoughts. When you or I are alone, quiet, and your mind attaches to that which is good and excellent and godly, or to that which is impure or sinful, it is the heart driving that. The heart is what motivates our actions, whether we will speak over someone to, to make our point or, or to, to listen sincerely to them, what they have to say, whether in traffic on the road will yield to someone or cut others off. Consequently, I think this may be why some of us don't put the, the Christian bumper stickers or the fish symbol on the back of our bumper. We know how we drive. Uh, The heart is what drives your purpose, what you're living after. It's what shapes your identity, how you will seek to shape your identity. It's very much like the operating system of life. And perhaps central of all, the heart was made to seek after and hold on to treasure. Think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, just three verses, Matthew 6, 19 to 21, he says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Really referring to the kingdom of God, the heavenly kingdom, which is here. Invest in that where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A few simple points can be drawn from Jesus' words. Number one, everyone is living for some kind of treasure. We are treasure seekers. Two, your treasure is going to control your heart. So whatever it is you treasure is going to take hold of your heart. Where your treasure is, there you'll find your heart. And three, what controls your heart is going to control your words and your thoughts, your behaviors and your life. And God desires us, his people, to treasure him above all else. Because in him is life. He is the one true God. Idols are dead, but we give to them a sort of life. He is the one true and only God. This is why the the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. What John is saying when he says, keep yourselves from idols, is simply another way of referring to the first commandment. What is a God? What is an idol? We might put it this way. It's something in the creation that is taking or claiming the place in my heart that only God should have. J.I. Packer said anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his God. When we think of of gods or idols, um, our mind might immediately go to a a physical image, a statue, perhaps a little statue of, of a Buddha, or a picture of Confucius. Uh, this is understandable. In fact, as we read in Acts 17, as Paul's walking through Athens, he sees the, the city full of idols. Where John is ministering around Ephesus would have been somewhat similar. Athens was notorious for having numerous pagan temples, various statues of male and female deities, so much so that the Roman official Petrinus could say, quote, it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. But idolatry in the Scriptures goes deeper than making gods out of physical images. In fact, while it's true to say that idolatry is worshiping something other than God, that may be an insufficient answer. The Bible is full of incidents of idolatry, including worship of false gods but it also includes false worship of the true God. Not only worship of false gods, but false worship of the true God becomes idolatry. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Likely the most famous story in all of Scripture about idolatry is the story of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. You remember that story? Moses is called up by God to Mount Sinai, the Lord to reveal His word to him. And what happened? The people grow impatient and they turn to Aaron and they say to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said, okay, take off your gold rings, earrings, I'll fashion them into a golden calf. He received their gold, he made a golden calf. And the people say, these are your gods, O Israel. Now that sounds a whole lot like worshiping something other than the true God. Indeed it is. But notice what Aaron seeks to do. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. He made a proclamation And he said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the name of God. Builds an altar, declares a feast to the Lord, Yahweh. What's wrong with this picture? You have a false God, and then you have an effort to use the false God to give praise to the true God. Now here's the point. Man is very good at making false gods and then simultaneously trying to maintain worship of the one true God. That's an insight into the nature of the human heart, the struggle of the human heart. Where's Moses? And where's the Lord? We haven't heard from him. Here's an idea. Let's make a substitute for the time being something that will satisfy for the moment. I need to give my heart to something. But let's still hold on to the true Lord. Our catechism, the larger catechism, question 105, as it instructs us in what is forbidden in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods uh, before me. it, It includes atheism, denial of the true God, But then it also includes, as well as worshiping any other god with the true God. Very helpful. The divines understood that our hearts are at times divided, seeking to worship the Lord while holding on to lesser false gods. But these idols can take any form. I think any form. When this subject of idolatry surfaces, I find myself returning back to seminary when I was first introduced to Tim Keller's work on idolatry and counterfeit gods. And he identifies some, I think, helpful categories for us to examine our lives regularly, daily or weekly, about what is vying for our heart's attention. Because we all face it. One, he identifies as power Idolatry. Life only has meaning and worth if I have power and influence over others. Approval. Idolatry. Life only has meaning if I'm accepted by these people. Control. Idolatry. Life only has meaning if I can get control and mastery over my life in this area. Family idolatry. My life only has purpose if my children or my parents are happy and happy with me. Materialism, idolatry. My life only has value if I have a certain level of wealth. Financial freedom, nice possessions. I can honestly say I've never owned a car that made me feel like I was of of greater worth. Cars have always been for me a utility purpose. But I can imagine, I can imagine in my mind, cars making me feel like kind of something. Anything can do this. Clothes, position, power, possessions. The point is, whether it is a possession, freedom, comfort, power, relationship, independence, innumerable are the things that may be vying for our heart's attention. And not only attention, but potentially false worship. And then when it gets hold, it robs people of true, true worship, true joy, true peace, and fulfillment in only uh, the one true God. Well, what does John say we're to do with idols? He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That is to be vigilant and to be watchful, to be on guard against them. Maybe a few images or, or pictures might be of help. We've all seen on pieces of property that sign with just two words, maybe we have this sign on our own property, no trespassing. This means there is a landowner who has property that others are not permitted to enter, at least not without permission. And the believer's heart, the Christian's heart is God's property given to us, that heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, Ezekiel says, that we are to guard. It is land that idols are not permitted to step onto. But we need more than a sign, perhaps another images of help, border control. On a number of occasions while visiting Washington uh, State, the east side of the state in Spokane, Shelly and I would uh, take a, a trip up north to a small town in Canada called Nelson. Quaint little town, wonderful day visit just to walk around. But of course, you've got to go through uh, the border. And even though we're just going to enjoy a walk through the town for a day, it's always just a little bit nerve wracking for me, even though I, I know I'm innocent, going through the border. Because you know, it's authorities and they're gonna ask some questions. What brings you to Canada today? Do you have any firearms or ammunition? That that one does not concern me. I, I know I don't have them in the car. But then you get that question of do you have any fruits and vegetables? And that's when I think, did I get rid of the bananas in the backpack? What's gonna happen? We are to be like border control when it comes to our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 gives us the wisdom. Keep your heart. Guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. Out of the heart come our thoughts and desires and choices and values. Examine the heart. Weed the heart. Protect the heart. Your heart is precious real estate. The heart in Jesus Christ is precious real estate. And it's necessary because our nature is not that of a republic or democracy. We were made like a monarchy. Something is going to rule us. And we can be full of blind impulses, hungry desires, And they are only after their own satisfaction. Kind of like wild horses are our desires. If they're not tamed, it can lead to destruction. But if reins are thrown on them, bits to direct them, then the greater desires have their place, the lesser desires their place. And then they're guided for good and godliness. Yet guarding against idols still is not enough. Our own pursuit of godliness or self-discipline is not enough to protect or overcome the idols vying for our hearts. We truly need what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. By expulsion in his sermon, he meant forcing something out, ejecting, expelling it. A good synonym for this is displacement. It is the moving out of something from its place or position, and that place is filled and occupied with something new. And that's the way our sanctification works. It's not merely by saying no to those idols and sins, but by also saying yes, yes to that which is good and godly and holy so to the Spirit that we then reap the fruit of the Spirit. It's replacing or displacing lesser desires for lesser things with new desires for greater things. This is what Paul has in mind in Colossians and Ephesians when he speaks about putting off the old man and putting on the new. Made in the image of Christ. Listen to these words from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, indeed, as I have already said, you cannot truly deal with the negative unless you are at the same time doing the positive. The way to get rid of the defects is to cultivate the virtues. To use a well-known phrase of Thomas Chalmers, what we need is to apply the expulsive power of a new affection. I use a simple illustration. The way the dead leaves of winter are removed from some trees is not that people go around plucking them off. No, it is the new life, the shoot, that comes and pushes off the dead in order to make room for itself. In the same way, the Christian gets rid of all such things as bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice. The new qualities develop, and the others simply have no room. They're pushed out, and they're pushed off. I think the most effective way of living out the first commandment Having no other gods is to go hard as we can after the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a positive statement that as we do that, as we taste and see that the Lord is good, we desire more of it and we're satisfied. It's as we cry out to God in prayer that He meets with us and shows us His mercy. It's as we pick up and meditate on the Word that He renews our thinking. It's as we use our gifts to bless others that He blesses us. It's as we invest our lives in true fellowship that we grow in grace. Perhaps we need to do what the Apostle John says in Revelation, actually, to the church in Ephesus. I know you're enduring patiently, You're bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but you need to heed this, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. This happens in our lives. We need to return to our first love, the one who loved us, who gave his life for us, that we might know life in his name. Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize the, the struggles that take place within our hearts at times, sometimes to lesser degrees, sometimes uh, it is a great war and battle that we feel within us. Who will rescue me from this body of, of death? Yet we give thanks to You, O God, for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who has delivered us from the eternal consequence of sin, who has granted to us new life in Him. And we pray, Lord, that You would be merciful, that You would convict our hearts, and at the same time encourage our hearts that we might be able to sow to the Spirit to see that fruit of love and joy, peace within, self-control, faithfulness, gentleness, all of these fruits that come out of a life in You. And Lord, we pray that we would help one another, that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would feel the pains of others, uh, that we would walk side by side, encouraging and supporting one another in this journey. We thank You that as we walk this journey, uh, we have ultimate victory in You, that, that You have promised that work You began, You'll carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So that even in the midst of our struggles, Lord, we can have a sense of peace. That all is well with my soul. And that you are good and faithful. And that you watch over and lead your flock. Continue to bless us, O Lord, in our worship of you, we pray in Jesus' name.